Welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today we are talking to Alexandra Tanner, author of Worry. Alexandra Tanner is a Brooklyn-based writer and editor. She is a graduate of the MFA program at the New School and the recipient of fellowships from McDowell and the Center for Fiction. Her writing appears in the New York Times Book Review, Gawker, and Jewish Currents, among other outlets. Worry is her first novel. It's March of 2019, and 28-year-old Jules Gold, anxious, artistically frustrated, and internet-obsessed, has been living alone in the apartment she once shared with the man she thought she'd marry when her younger sister Poppy comes to crash, indefinitely. Poppy, a year and a half out from a suicide attempt only Jules knows about, searches for work and meaning in Brooklyn while Jules spends her days hate-scrolling the feeds of Mormon mommy bloggers and waiting for life to happen. Then the hives that have plagued Poppy since childhood flare up. Jules' uterus turns against her. Poppy brings home a maladjusted rescue dog named Amy Klobuchar. The girl's mother, a newly devout messianic Jew, is falling for the same deep state conspiracy theories as Jules' online mommies. Jules, half-heartedly struggling to scrape her way to the source of her ennui, slowly and cruelly comes to blame Poppy for her own insufficiencies as a friend, a writer, and a sister. And Amy Klobuchar might have rabies. As the year shambles on and a new decade looms near, a disastrous trip home to Florida forces Jules and Poppy, comrades, competitors, constant fixtures in each other's lives, to ask themselves what they want their futures to look like and whether they'll spend them together or apart. Deadpan, dark, and brutally funny, Worry is a sharp portrait of two sisters enduring a dread-filled American moment from a nervy new voice in contemporary fiction. Hi, Alexandra. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, what a good book copy, like, oh, uh, in and of itself. It is kind of killer. I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, it, it, you know, speaking to it, I'd like to first address the book copy literally. Um, what does it mean to you to be identified as a nervy new voice in contemporary fiction? <laughs> <laughs> um. The funny thing about book copy is you and your editor kind of collaborate on them. So it, it's sort of the writer's dream of this deciding how to cast yourself and how the world's going to see you. Um, so I think nervy, I think it's speaks to what's nervous about the book, but also it's sort of audacious about the book or what I hope people will find is audacious about the book. What about you as a writer? As a writer? Mm-hmm. Like, it is, I know, the first book, and so it's, it's not it's like we have, like... my first book, yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's not a catalog here to sort of dissect, but... Right. It, 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 in the book copy, it is being associated mm-hmm. to you as a writer, not necessarily the book yeah. itself. And I, I think I wanted... I, I'm, it's, it's my hope that people are going to find that the book is nervy and that it is... Um, bold and saying something new. Um, I think it's hard to, I'm finding that it's hard as a debut writer to sort of decide who you're going to present yourself to as the world. Mm -hmm. Um, 
present yourself to the world as. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there's, it's so loaded and there's that classic thing about you get one chance to make a first impression. So I kind of, it's my hope that the book, um, that it, it does something, that it makes some kind of mark, that it's not just like another, you know, piece rolling out in the season, that it says something unique. I think it definitely does something and says something uh, it did for me in, in my reading experience. I guess really what I'm I'm trying to wonder is mm-hmm. if your next book is also going mm-hmm. to be nervy. <laughs> um, that comes with, <laughs> I like, think so. The territory. Yeah, I, okay. I, yeah, absolutely. I think that's what I want to do in my writing is um, uncover and say things that are sort of humming in the motor of your mind, in the background of your mind, your worst thoughts, your um, fears that you can't really recognize as a conscious thought almost and put that on the page. So I'm working on another book right now, very early stages. That's about um, a relationship um, between two people. And I'm, I'm trying to take the lessons I learned from writing worry about being really specific um, and really un- unapologetic and really unafraid, even though it's scary to put something um, really personal or, or really sort of shocking on the page. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to carry that energy into the new project. I'm excited to hear that. Um, I'm obsessed with the book cover. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Oh, thank you. Absolutely. When I started working with the team at Scribner, I sent them like a little Dropbox folder of images that I had been looking at while I was writing the book and sort of dreamed of for the cover. And there were probably three or four images in there from uh, Shannon Lucy, who's an amazing American painter based in Nashville. And we made it happen. We found uh, an image of hers that was the right mix of sort of dark and a little scary, but also a little bit funny, which I think all of her paintings are. Um, And I I feel really lucky that she permissioned the work for us. And, you know, she and I have corresponded a little bit and I've just told her I'm so grateful because I I think it's so bright and it communicates so much and it has this feeling of bearing this immense weight, but also you, you don't need to be bearing this immense weight, which I think is what the book is doing. Um, this was a very literal reading experience for me as I too Mm -hmm. only have one sibling and it's an older sister. Um, Mm -hmm. I was endeared to hear the two grown women refer to their parents as mommy and daddy. We do this too, my sister and I. I absolutely call my parents mommy and daddy. Really? Oh my God. So just the other day. Yeah, and uh-huh. my sister is starting to get to a phase where she like she's like, this is weird, Sruti. Like, why are we still doing this? Like, I'm 40 and you're, like, 34. Like, this is – we're, like, literally texting. Like, mommy said right. to pick us up, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I yeah. still find it endearing, but she does do it. Too. And I guess, like, you do too. Okay, I kind of wanted your yeah, thoughts on yeah, that. Of yeah, of course. I do think I absolutely have had, you know, friends or my partner being like, you call your parents mommy and daddy when you're in your 30s. But there are some parents who are mommy and daddy. And I think it's as much about them as it is about you and your relationship to them um, that sort of leaves you hanging on 
don't know. I think it's so cute and so funny. I'm glad someone else does it too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Did you did you say it leaves you hanging on? Yeah, you're hanging on to like a part of your childhood, I think, and a part of that part of you that needs a mommy and needs a daddy. True. That's so sweet. Yes. <laughs> um <laughs> I guess um, a pretty obvious question is sort of what motivated mm-hmm. you in wanting to explore female friendship specifically in the form of literal sisterhood? Mm-hmm. I mean, my younger sibling is um, a huge presence in my life. Um, and our relationship is just so, there's no other relationship I have in my life that is so um, free because it, <sighs> It's it's boundaryless in a lot of ways, and I think certainly a few years ago was really really boundaryless. And I think in the last few years, um, my sibling and I have built in some better ways to care for one another and talk to one another. But the amazing thing to me about sibling relationships in particular is if you have a certain kind of sibling relationship, the stakes are. It's not the same as in a even a close friendship or an old friendship with someone, you say the wrong thing and and you could really hurt that person and create a break. And there's this social pressure. And I think in a sibling relationship, if you've sort of made this pact with one another, you can say anything, you can do anything. Um, it's It's a really free place to sort of be your truest self. And I think that's, Definitely the relationship that my younger sibling and I have had is just no holds barred, anything on the table. I find that to be a really beautiful and, like, positive reading. But underneath that, speaking to what you just said, with that freedom, I think there's also this openness for cruelty, too mm-hmm. um, in a specific way yeah and it's which is not exactly always positive like <laughs> it, it's sort of just you know you hurt the ones you love the most because yeah. you know you can right is that right. it right yeah yeah absolutely I think my sibling and I yeah we say horrible things to each other and have hurt each other I think less now than when we were younger um, but then that kind of shows you I think the um, consequence of that, it's not about the relationship ending or the relationship necessarily changing drastically, but it's about what it reveals to you about yourself and what you will say to another person when you know that you can get away with it. Um, So I think that's sort of what motivates a lot of the relationship between Jules and Poppy is I have this opportunity to reveal this bad part of myself. So I'm going to do it. And then I just have to sort of live with it being reflected back at me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this feeling often, I think, within siblings of wanting answers from from the other. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. like, hey, you're the closest to being me in this world. So how are you mm-hmm. reading this thing in this world? Right. I want to learn. Right. Um, but it has its frustrations and hindrances too on the other end where it's like, I don't know, I'm struggling as is. What do you mm-hmm. want from me? I don't have these answers. And I'm sort right. of wondering if you agree with that read when it comes to Poppy and Jules. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, say that one more time. 
again, it's you're the closest thing to being me in mm-hmm. this world. That's not me. So how are you experiencing this world? Mm-hmm. Give me answers. And only to have the other person being like, I don't know. <laughs> what answers right. do you want that from me? That is completely the trap of siblinghood is you think we were raised in the same house. So, of course, I can look to this person for advice about this situation. But the thing about siblings is you you kind of grow in different directions almost without recognizing it because that impulse to do that is so strong to say that's the other me it's somehow me but external Mm -hmm. Um, do you have that with your younger your older sibling I do for sure but we're also so different we're Mm -hmm. we're just fundamentally it, it is crazy to me how we are the closest to being each other to be in this world while mm-hmm. still being like completely polar opposite people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a very, yeah, and I it's, think it's that's, a dizzy experience. What's interesting about that is that like, I think of my sibling and I as so similar, but I think from the outside, my, I know that, you know, my friends and, and other people in my life are like, you guys are really different, but there's something mm-hmm. about it that recognizing that difference or admitting that difference is like painful almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is it painful? I don't know. I, I'm I'm still trying to figure it out because mm-hmm. it shouldn't be. It should be. It should be. You know, beautiful that two people who come from the same exact circumstances can become really radically different. But there's mm-hmm. something about it's like a loss of a part of you to admit mm-hmm. that that there is a vast difference between you. Yeah. Do, do you think this would have been a drastically different book if it was about two brothers? Mm, that's interesting. I have two older brothers as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they're several years older than my younger sibling and I. And their relationship is really interesting to me because they're also really different from each other. Um, but I think have this language that the two of them speak that my younger sibling and I don't speak and that no one else in the world speaks. So I, I don't really think so. I that's that's a tough like perspective switch, but just I, because the book is I also, also so think tied like, to the female experience. Right. And so that's mm-hmm. what's been really interesting is when I, you know, my younger sibling was assigned female at birth, and when mm-hmm. I started writing the novel, they were using she her pronouns identifying as a woman and over the course of the last several years they've made enormous changes in their life and they're mm-hmm. in the middle of a really beautiful transition they're using they he pronouns and mm-hmm. so uh, what's been really interesting about so many of our conversations over the years is like looking back on our childhoods and parts of our life that were really gendered and that we were the girls quote unquote and we're taught to relate to each other through this lens of you share the experience of being girls. But it never, there were times where it didn't feel like that. And we obviously couldn't name it. And now we sort of laugh because I think our our relationship and our conversations have sort of rendered gender irrelevant to our relationship with each other. Um, so my thinking about gender and siblinghood is really in flux right now and is in a really 
interesting place where I sort of see gender as, as I don't want to say f- false, as not real, but I think my sibling and I kind of laugh about that, that the way we relate to each other never was and never again will be about, you know, being sisters in that classic sense of the word. That's so deeply fascinating. And and I, fair warning, like, a lot of my questions are centered around the female experience in particular, just because, of yeah. the, you know, the book itself is. Of course, that, yeah. It really, like, flips everything on uh, <laughs> on, on itself, thinking yeah, about yeah. that. I mean, so, so for instance, another aspect um, that specifies mm-hmm. with regards to sisterhood is this added dimension of a third party and almost third sister. Mm-hmm. Again, something that I can relate to, the mother. Um, mm-hmm. And you explore this in the book. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that these girls don't really have a fraught relationship with their father, for instance. Do, mm-hmm. do you? Right. No, 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 no. I think it's totally... I, and the fact that you say third sister, I mean, I haven't ever thought that phrase to myself, but that's totally what it is and what's operating in the book. Yeah, like fights. I, there's so yeah, many times like where my dad is like, yeah, yeah. Like my dad just like throws her hands in the, his hair and he like leaves the room and he's like leaving <laughs> well, these crazy women to it. Yeah, like, yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And I think, like, and I mean, I'm fine talking about, like, my life as it, or my family dynamic as it was before my siblings transition. Like, mm-hmm. that that feels intimately familiar, that experience mm-hmm. of it being sort of a den of women and the father in the corner going, I'm, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> I, I guess thing happens. my question, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, please. Yeah. Oh, my so, question so is sort of literally, say. what's the deal with that? Like, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have, a, I have thousands and thousands of words of thoughts, but I guess what I've been thinking a lot about lately is how, like, when my younger sibling and I were growing up, there was this sense that, like, I was the older sister, so I was going to teach certain things specifically sort of about the performance of femininity, you know, here's mm-hmm, how you mm-hmm. put on eyeshadow and here's how you uh, make friends at school, whatever it was, everything I can see now comes through that scrim of, of gender and of femininity. And for an older sibling, the person to look to for that is the mother. But I think the mm-hmm. younger sibling gets to look to the older sibling um, for these instructions about, about, gender and about how to relate to people. And I think like that gives the younger sibling someone accessible and someone who's on their level. And then I think for the older sibling, often the person you're looking to is your mother who is light years ahead of you and who is an adult woman and you're a child. And it, I I just think about that sensation a lot that, you know, I remember watching my mother get ready to go out for dinner mm-hmm. and putting perfume on and putting makeup on and and really wanting to absorb everything about that experience but not being able to like translate it to how to improve my own life because I was a child. So I think that's what's going on in in that sort of specific family configuration when there's many daughters and they all have to sort of circle each other and circle their mother to understand the world. 
Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, the relationship between siblings can involve so much intimacy, uh, which is, I think, again, what ultimately leads to its rivalry. Um, it's funny because we're out here in this world seeking intimacy all the time. It's a general mm-hmm. statement, but, you know, we're looking for connections and et cetera. Um, and then we're given it by, when we're given it by birth, we often don't want it. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, why do you think that is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, Why don't we want intimacy, like, with our siblings? Mm-hmm. Um, when we want it. It's like the, hum- it's the natural human yeah, condition. Yeah, but it's, I think then when you get that, close to someone there is something like repulsive about about that level of vulnerability and for for me a lot of the conflict between Jules and Poppy in the book is like they're both struggling so intensely and they're both in and they're in such close quarters with each other and they're like bearing witness to each other's to these moments of real suffering and real pain and feeling disfigured and feeling, you know, trapped in your own mind and in your own body to like see that, to see someone go through that and realize that like, you're the person who's supposed to catch that, catch them and pull them out of free fall. It's, it's a huge, Mm -hmm. it's a responsibility and it feels like a burden and it, there's something in us that like can be repulsed by that. And, mm-hmm. and of course, then you feel like shit for, <laughs> for being repulsed by someone in a moment of human need. And so I think that dynamic is sort of what repeats throughout the book of like, when's the time that they're gonna show up for each other and, and celebrate that intimacy instead of being afraid of it. It's so funny because this book is fraught with moments of misinterpretation, but underlined with so much love. Um, Mm. What do you think becomes of us if we only communicated the intended love? If these misinterpretations that are very Mm. human, like in this, I guess, utopian or ideal world, which again, I'm not even sure if it would be utopian, Mm -hmm. but like in this imaginary hypothetical world where we only communicated the intended love, what do you think that world would be like? That's such a beautiful phrase, communicating the intended love. Yeah. Uh, I don't don't even know. I think when I think about my close relationships, I I don't know. I don't know. I think without miscommunication and, and without being able to sort of speak to one another directly. I think, I guess what I think is that those moments where there's a miscommunication, where there's a misalignment of of intent or feeling, that's, those are the moments that show you something about yourself. Mm-hmm. So I guess in a utopia where we're always communicating what the other person needs, and and catching each other when we fall. I think there would obviously be a, you would sacrifice sort of what miscommunication teaches you about yourself in order to, you know, be there completely for someone else. 
I agree. Um, <laughs> Jules being the older sister is very obviously seeing her sister through a maternal lens. Uh, you know, she longingly looks up baby photos of Poppy and is filled with like a lot of mm-hmm. love at the sight of them. My sister was constantly texting me like, I just saw this picture of you and I wish you were this Ooh. size again. Um, oh are the youngest in the family the baby forever? Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do think I'm not I'm not the youngest, but I think I think when you're the youngest, yeah, because you're representative of like this moment in your family's life when things felt complete, I think. I am also always sending my younger sibling baby pictures. I think they were the cutest baby in the world. Yeah, my sister says the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's very so sweet, maternal. It's, it's very, yeah. but scary. <laughs> it's like I'm 34. Like, I don't know what to right. tell you. Like, right. Um, I'm not that, that baby. It's also, it comes with like luxury. Like I love being the baby of the family. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. um, but it's sort of like, I'm my, my father's like, he's constantly telling me, he was like, you always be the baby. Like you could be 90 Mm -hmm. years old and it doesn't matter. And yeah, I'm sort of, I just wanted to know if you agreed with that sentiment. (laughs) Um, on page 91, Jules very bluntly Mm -hmm. tells Poppy, she doesn't think Poppy would be a good mom. Um, she -hmm. sort of tries to include herself in this assessment. So it seems less cruel. Nonetheless, Poppy reads it as pretty cruel. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, Mm -hmm. and given the intimacy of family, in what ways can the person who's closest to being you in this world fail to know you at all. I guess this goes back to the Mm -hmm. original question. Um, But I think Poppy feels like it's such a cruel sentiment because she's, there's this version of herself that's being thrown back at her by herself. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 I love, I love the way this is going that it just, everything sort of loops in on itself. It's this, I, I guess this is what sometimes I felt throughout the writing of the book. Like, why am I writing a family novel? Like, what is there to be gained from being this specific about family? And, and, you know, there's nothing sort of like, it's, it's not as compelling to, to read about a family as what I was thinking. It's not as compelling to read about siblings as it is to read about a couple or, you know, a best friendship. But then I'm just thinking about how all these things are part of every little interaction like that. When, when you can look at your sibling and say, yeah, I don't think you should have children. Mm-hmm. you're you're assigning something that is I- impossible to think that you could utter those words mm-hmm. because of course you don't actually know whether your sibling would be a good parent but of course you feel that you can judge <laughs> that person more accurately and with with more like clarity than anyone else. And I think that's the, that's the tension. That's the whatever catch 22 of siblinghood is like, who are you to say that? But also would anyone else say that to you? And I think it just creates this whole sort of existential thing being on the receiving end of a statement like that. Um, mm-hmm. that I think Jules delivers pretty offhandedly. I think she's mm-hmm. just sort of like talking out of her ass as she often mm-hmm. does. And it, and it hits, it hits so hard. And that's the responsibility of having that arena of 
completely unguarded speech with someone is eventually you're going to say something that that like does shift things and does implicate you. On page 104, as Jules anxiously thinks about a potential job, she says, I want this non-job so badly I can feel my throat closing up. Um, what is a non-job and is it uniquely <laughs> millennial? How, if so? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I've had a lot of non-jobs Same. in my time. Um <laughs> Where I'm, I'm just sort of, I, I feel like it's clear that I'm just there to get my paycheck and get my health insurance and deliver something sort of middling. And the company itself is delivering a product that's sort of middling or a service that's sort of middling. And I think it, I guess it's uniquely millennial in that it just speaks to everybody's exhaustion and everybody's you know, what is the point of work, work that's so mindless in a world that's um, like bleeding (laughs) every second? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. I'm interested to see, like, I have a lot of nieces and nephews and they're sort of in their tweens and teens. And I'm like, what are they going to do? Like, what are they going to be? Are they going to professionalize? Are they going to be doctors and lawyers? Or are they going to also sort of do the, like, email jobs, um, low effort, (laughs) low return, and you're sort of trapped in the vortex of it? I don't know. It's so wild because, I mean, I come from, uh, my parents are immigrants, and it's just that Mm -hmm. classic tale of moving to North America to, uh, you know, provide a better life for our children Um, And they did, absolutely, and I'm forever grateful for it. But they, I don't think they ever imagined that that was going to be an email Mm -hmm. job, (laughs) you know? (laughs) No one could have known that, like, bringing success to your children is going to be an email job. An email job, yeah. I love that. But the email job is also sort of, you know, it's, it's the, when you have a creative life, that feels like you're the real thing you're working for. And the email job is sort of like a bad dream that you have for a few hours a day. Um, and so I guess in that sense, like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's all selling your soul. Yeah. A deeply relatable aspect to the book. Um, another particularly millennial experience for Jules is this feeling of wanting to achieve or be more, but simultaneously mm-hmm. realizing there's actually no, there's in fact no want there at all. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it made me wonder what kind of greatness do you think can be found in accepting a lack of greatness? In other mm. words, like, what yeah. could the value of being like a regular person, quote unquote, regular person be? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, I think the value of being a regular person. Yeah, I think there's this. Like sense. lacking ambition. That's that. What, what's right, it? right. Yeah. What, what what kind of beauty can someone who lacks ambition achieve in a <laughs> way that someone who, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I think Jules lacks the ability to, like, conceive of the future. 
I think she's mm-hmm. very stuck in the present. And so I think she can't even formulate an ambition because I think, I mean, my my instinct is to say that like she comes from a place of privilege and she comes from South Florida. She has a wealthy father. And so mm-hmm. I think the ambition or at least what I saw growing up in South Florida as ambition was the ambition to be able to do nothing and the ambition to be able to not work and be on vacation and, and just sort of perpetuate this life of luxury and plenty. And I think Jules like has one foot out of that where she, she, she does have this sort of latent ambition to be recognized and be special but is also sort of realizing like to what end it's so Mm -hmm. much work to be special. It's so much work. It's work she's not prepared to do that, you know, she can't find like a center. She can't find a creative impulse. She can't find a cause she thinks is worthwhile or, or could begin to care about. So I think what's going on with her is just this, her brain is poisoned by this feeling that, the high point of life is is nothing, is being able to look at your phone all day. And she kind of has that in a way, but it's, she hasn't realized like, oh, I don't actually want this. I do want to have mm-hmm. ambition. I don't think she's there yet. Can you speak to why you decided to give Jules a hate love obsession with Mormon mommy bloggers? Um, yeah, I think I I was, I had a big hate love relationship with mommy bloggers when I started oh, writing wow. this book. And it was, I think the, the aims of the book in terms of how it looks at the internet, I, I felt like I had to almost narrow the focus to mommy blogging because it just emerged to me at that moment as like the microcosm of everything that was so insane about the internet, that it was people mm-hmm. exploiting their children, um, people wandering conspiracy theories, um, people, you know, (laughs) like spouting white supremacist rhetoric under the guise Mm -hmm. of a cute post and Mm -hmm. and not even realizing like the sort of bizarre dog whistles that are in there. But of course they have to be realizing it because they're posting it. So it was just breaking my brain in that way every day. And it had started as sort of like an innocuous thing I was going to look at when I was bored and it just sort of took over my consciousness. So I'm, I love looking to the internet as a site of, it, it, I don't know, it tickles my brain to look at people being crazy online. So I think for Jules, it's a little bit of that and it's a numbing out. It's, it's a way to like, not have to look at her own mental illnesses (laughs) because she's looking at these women online who she's like, Oh, that's a mentally ill person. Like that's a sick person. I'm Mm -hmm. fine compared Mm -hmm. to this person. The book also explores the tenuousness and fragility of loving someone who's previously had a suicide attempt. 
Um, on page 136, Jules can't track Poppy down and texts her if she's alive or if she killed herself. A mm-hmm. colloquial thing. I'm sure many people have said, I'm going to kill myself. I want to kill myself. Um, and was probably intended as such in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has a lot more and also in this particular context, given Poppy's background. Do you think Jules is being cruel in this way? Or, or is this what it is to have had the experience of su- suicide normalized for you in a way? Do you mean like the casual, I'm going to kill myself? Just the casual, are you, okay, you know, you're my- Did you kill yourself? You're not texting me back. Did you kill yourself? It's like, like, on some level, she's obviously literally worried that she has in fact killed herself. But she's also turning it into a joke. Yeah, yeah. I think when you, when you know someone with, with a suicidal drive- um, whether that drive is active or whether it's dormant, whether it's been years since they've mentioned wanting not to live or feeling like they don't want to, whatever, however mm-hmm. they talk about it, no matter how much time has passed, the, that fear is, it undercuts everything. It's underneath mm-hmm. everything. And I think for Jules, like, it, it goes back to that, Thing of I can make any joke to this person. And so mm-hmm. she can make the joke of, are you not texting me back because you've actually killed yourself? Mm-hmm. And not thinking about like, of course, Poppy hasn't killed herself. Of course, she's going to read that text in an hour when she mm-hmm. is done with whatever she's doing, which I think in this case is napping. <laughs> but I think that speaks to that, that Jules just can't access that real fear. The real fear or the real horror of what would it actually look like if I came home to find a dead body or if I had to mm-hmm. take my younger sibling to the hospital, that that moment is, is too, you know, disgusting, terrifying, whatever it is to think about. She's going to deflect. Hmm. Why name a dog Amy Klobuchar? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you just well, answered it. Was that was, like literal Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for like, <laughs> LOL, la- laughing, yeah. But uh, they're, they're what, I was spending a lot of time on Pet Finder, whatever, 2018, 2019, because I wanted to look at cute rescue dogs and maybe rescue one, even though I don't think I could have a dog in New York. But all the Pet Finder names, the shelters sort of group these animals that come in in like groups, but the groups are sort of increasingly insane. So you'll see a group of dogs that's like, Harry Potter, Ron Weasley, and then you'll see a group of dogs that's like Joe Biden. <laughs> and I just think it's Why? funny. The, I, like, I, I, I don't know. I think it's so they're easy to identify. Like, you can tell which puppies go with which, like, if they all come from one litter. But I just sort of would try to get myself in the headspace of, like, calling the shelter and being like, I want to come visit the dog Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, like, I was just also interested in, like, you know, sometimes when a dog is raised with one name, they have trouble adjusting to a new name. And if they just couldn't get anything else to stick other than Amy Klobuchar, it seemed like a, you know, just like a silly scenario to me. It's, it's, it adds so much humor to the book because Poppy is so defensive of Amy Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. And, like, <laughs> Klobuchar. <isn't, laughs> 
<laughs> is insistent of like her love for Amy and like how she can take care and protect Amy. It's it's oh. hilarious. And Amy Klobuchar <laughs> just as a political candidate was so funny and so yeah. earnest. And she said the same thing over and over. And oh, God. Yeah. God love her. Yeah. Um, the dog is often used in this book as a comparison for behavior we would allow in a dog, but would not allow, allow in ourselves as human. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me wonder why can't Jules permit the same for Poppy? Like, why can't she permit Poppy to be herself? Kind of like you have these chapters that just like sort of end with like, and then Amy Klobuchar like pissed on the floor. And like Jules (laughs) is very like nonchalant about it. But then like when Poppy does her version of pissing on the floor. Yes, she can't tolerate it. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think there's something about, and I'm interested as a, as a writer in animals and animal consciousness and how we bring animals into our home and mm-hmm. let them rule our lives. Um, and you are willing to tolerate so much more from an animal. He doesn't know any better. He's so cute. There's an, there's an explanation for all of it that goes back to like the way the animal is wired. Mm-hmm. The same thing is true for us because we are all, we are also animals. There's mm-hmm. the way we're wired explains so much of our behavior and and the way we act out. And but we, we're we tell each other that we're supposed to be better than animals. That we're supposed to take responsibility for our actions or see the action coming and and forestall it somehow. So I'm just I'm really interested in that and how you know a pet can bite someone, maim someone, you say, oh, but it's my pet. (laughs) And when a person acts out in that same way, you're like, oh, I have to cut off contact with this person. Like, there's just, I'm very interested in rules for animals and humans. Um, I think that's, that's so apt for this book. For you to say that I'm very interested in rules for animals and humans. Um, on page 165, Jules thinks having a sister is looking in a, is like looking in a cheap mirror. What's there is you, but unfamiliar and ugly for it. I guess my hopeful question is: in what ways is the opposite of this true and possible? Mm, yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know that I agree with Jules on that one. I think when I look at my younger sibling, what I see is not um, like a version of me that I'm repulsed by. I see like someone I have complete empathy and love for. And so there's there there is that mirroring. And I think it maybe depends on your mood and whatever else is going on in your life at the moment. Are you able to look at this person who refracts you in some way back to yourself? And are you able to have empathy for it or do you have disgust for it? Um. Yeah, I love that. Um, Yeah, I I guess (laughs) I do think that, you know, the thread throughout this conversation is sort of 
that they are mirrors. Siblings are mirrors mm-hmm. to yourself and your existence. Um, and in many ways, it's fraught with ugliness. And in many ways, it's fraught with something beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I do fervently believe that. I just don't have the words to sort of capture why in what ways it's beautiful. So I was looking to mm-hmm. you to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's. No, it's a big, it's any a big time one, that, yeah. yeah, it's a big, it's sort of the question of life in a way is like, yeah. who can we look at and see ourselves and react with love and who do we look at and, and see ourselves and react with fear or, you know, pain or rejection um, and in a sibling relationship, I just think it's, that's happening more frequently because mm-hmm. of how similar you are. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Alexandra. That That's it for us. Um, Thank you uh, so much. L- listeners, you can go pick up a copy uh, in Montreal at Pulp Books or from your local indie bookseller. Um, pick it up. It's such a fun read. Thank you again. Thank you. It's okay.